2 Kings chapter 21, if you'll turn with me there. We didn't quite get out of the end of chapter 21 last time. We left off with the death of Manasseh, the king of Judah in the southern kingdom. At this time, we're kind of moving now towards, as we close out 2 Kings, just a few chapters left, uh, the decline of the southern kingdom of Judah now. They will actually be conquered by Babylon and brought there in captivity where they'll be in Babylon for a 70-year time period as God unfolds uh, a particular judgment uh, for them, particularly not only their idolatry, but neglecting uh, the Sabbath years uh, for a 490-year period. They repeatedly neglected that Sabbath year. So basically, we'll see God will move them out of the land uh, basically for 70 years as a way of just simply really recouping back uh, those Sabbaths in the land. So certainly disciplining them, but really God taking what was rightfully his that they were kind of trying to withhold from him. Uh, So at this time, we're seeing the nation decline. A lot of that had a direct impact. We saw last time of the deterioration morally and spiritually that came through this man, King Manasseh, who reigned for 55 years and really was probably, if not uh, the most, one of the most wicked and ungodly kings, generally, both the northern and the southern kingdom, but certainly in the southern kingdom of Israel. I mean, this horrific list of the things that he was doing in the land during his 55-year reign we read about in chapter 21 last time, which ultimately sort of caused the Lord to come to a place where he spoke about how he was going to stretch the measuring line over Jerusalem. That is the same measuring line of judgment that he brought against the northern kingdom of Samaria. And again, we said God always measures time morally. Uh, That's how God measures out how he deals with people individually. It's how God measures out how he deals with nations in regards to at times having to deal with them or to judge them or bring his discipline upon them. And the southern kingdom of Judah was now declining to a condition that was really much like the northern kingdom of Samaria. And so the Lord spoke about how he was going to bring judgment against them. Uh, At the death of Manasseh, we now come in chapter 21 to the reign of the next uh, son in that lineage. Chapter 21, verse 19, uh, tells us that Ammon now, his son, reigns in his place and says in verse 19, Ammon was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. So quite a contrast His father reigns 55 years, incredibly wicked, has a 55-year reign. Ammon now, his son, only reigns for two years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz of Jabtha. And he, verse 20, did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. So he walked in all the ways that his father had walked. And he served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. He forsook the Lord God of his fathers and did not walk in the way of the Lord. So here again, we see this pattern. We've seen it before of the unfortunate influence of the life of the parent and how the parent lived out his life. And keep in mind, from Manasseh, that was a, again, at least a good half a century. I mean, it wasn't like he just had a few bad years. I mean, Manasseh, for the majority of his life and the majority of the upbringing, no doubt, of uh, Ammon, was living just completely in wickedness and idolatry, not only just in his personal life, but the way that he led the nation and the things he was introducing to the people of the land. And certainly that means directly to his own family. And now we see the unfortunate influence of that, that his son, unfortunately being exposed to such darkness and such wickedness, his heart in his flesh gravitated towards those things because we're told here that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And verse 21 uh, reminds us, 20 and 21 that he did these things as his father Manasseh verse 21 again he walked in all the ways that his father walked and served the idols that his father served so again the bible is just reminding us again this this unhealthy influence of the parent had a direct impact upon the son whereby it's almost as if because he was exposed to those things exposed to those things exposed to those things that just like when you wear a path through the woods 
And if you just keep walking the same path again and again and again, eventually you kind of you make a a obvious pathway where it's much easier to find it and and tread that same course again. Well, well that kind of happens morally and spiritually with parents to the children sometimes. That if parents continue to live in a way of ungodliness and don't serve the Lord and don't follow the Lord and maybe are involved in sinful habits and practices and they continuously expose their children to these things year after year, year after year, it is much more easy for the heart of that child to be inclined to those same patterns to walk in those same ways. And it's a very unfortunate thing here and why we really need to be careful and recognize the danger of certain sins and bad habits or wrong behaviors that would ever try and creep into any of our lives, certainly as adults and as parents, because there's much more at stake if we're parents than just our own lives. We're potentially risking a whole nother generation of following in those same patterns. And unfortunately, that's what Amnon did. It says that he walked in the same ways his father walked and he served the same gods, the idolatry that his father did. But notice verse 22 also indicates that it was a conscious choice. Yes, his father exposed him to those things. Yes, his father made him really more apt to probably gravitate in those ways. But yet verse 22 says of Amnon, he forsook the Lord God of his fathers and did not walk in the way of the Lord. In other words, what God's saying is despite what he was exposed to, and despite what he was maybe taught and, and kind of had put upon him as a child, it did not remove from him the responsibility to still choose what path he took. Because the Bible says in verse 22, he made his own decision to forsake the Lord God and to walk in the way of the Lord. There was always another way that he could have taken. And we're going to see particularly in the very next king and Josiah, that's exactly what Josiah does. Josiah chooses to walk in the way of the Lord, even though he was exposed to a lot of wickedness and ungodliness as well. And again, there's never the excuse of, well, I am the way that I am because I was raised the way that I was. Listen, I have great sympathy and I apologize for any sinful, wicked, ungodly things you were exposed to as a child or in your upbringing or if you have a, you know, a fractured relationship because of dysfunctional, I mean seriously dysfunctional parents. And that's sad and that's unfortunate. I know that leaves wounds. I know it causes confusion. And I know it makes us maybe more apt or prone to walk in certain patterns if we were exposed and exposed and exposed. But it's never a justification. And before God, it is never going to work as an excuse. Well, I became, uh, you know, someone addicted to substance abuse because that's, that's what I was raised in. Or, or I became someone who, you know, had no control over my passions and my lust because that's what I was exposed to with my father. Or I became someone who was bitter or hurtful or abusive or, or treat my children this way because I never learned. Well, listen, it doesn't have to be that way. I understand we've been more prone to that, but we never want to use that as an excuse or a justification where we kind of play the victim card and we think that we have a right to behave wrongly just because our parent did or the people who rose us, raised us did or what we were exposed to. We want to be very careful of that because in God, there's freedom. God gives choice. God gives opportunity to break the chain, to live differently. And we may be more prone to it, but it doesn't mean we have a right to go in that direction. And God will hold us all accountable still for the choices that we ultimately make. And again, as I said, we'll see this next king as a very clear example of that to encourage our hearts. So verse 23, because of the way Amnon lived in the same pattern of Manasseh, his father, it says, then the servants of Amnon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. So that's why his reign only lasted two years. He was assassinated in his own home by a conspiracy from some of his servants. Verse 24, but the people of the land then executed all those who had conspired against King Amnon. And then the people of the land, interesting, made his son Josiah king in his place so they put his son josiah on the throne it seems the people kind of voted this as a decision rather than the family dynasty deciding it and the rest of the acts of amnon which he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of judah and he was buried in his tomb in the garden of uzzah 
And then Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. Now, as we look at Josiah, as I said, here's this beautiful picture of contrast. Josiah, we will see, is certainly one of the eight good and godly kings that that existed in the southern kingdom of Judah. And more than that, in my estimation, I would say Josiah is probably the most good and godly king that the southern kingdom had out of the eight that they did have. And what an interesting thing to see the contrast. Amnon was raised with a horribly wicked and evil father, Manasseh. Josiah, his father was Amnon, who followed in the patterns of really what would have been his grandfather. So here is Josiah. He's now born and he's raised not only with a wicked father, but a wicked grandfather on top of it. So he has Amnon as his father and Manasseh as his grandfather. And here's somebody, again, a young man who could have said, well, look, well, if anybody has a right, I got a right. Because my dad was messed up and a wicked, evil guy, and my grandpa was just as messed up or even worse. And so two generations, I mean, what do you want? I had nowhere to turn. I couldn't even say I got a bad dad, so let me go get some help from my grandpa. But yet Josiah, this young man, we're going to see, chooses to not forsake the Lord and for some reason he makes a personal conscious decision to walk in the way of the Lord. And again, what a great encouragement. As I said a moment ago, just like yes, as parents, we have to be careful because bad influence on our children can have a very negative effect and cause a strong percentage of the potential of them going in the wrong direction. But yet there's no excuse for the child who's been raised and exposed to sinful and godly things wrongly to say, well, I have the right to live that way. And now Josiah comes on the scene and he shows us the best of all. And he says, listen, I was exposed to all that and I decided I'm not living that way. I decided there's nothing good in that but misery and regret. And I'm choosing as for me and my household, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to live differently. And what a great reminder. Look, no matter what your background has been, none of that has to prohibit you from having a wonderful future in God. None of it. It does not matter what your family dynamic was, what your upbringing, you can chart your own course spiritually. You can choose to live for the Lord and do things completely differently and navigate a totally different path by choosing to walk in the way of the Lord. What a wonderful thing that God gives us, that freedom. And we don't have to feel like that because of our background, we're hindered from a a good and a glorious and fruitful future with God's blessing upon our life. And Josiah is a great example of choosing to do that. So he now comes to the throne and look at verse one of chapter 22 says, Josiah was, that's not a a, a typo there, eight years old when he became king. (laughs) Eight years old. I mean, what is that like? Lucky charms for the whole kingdom. I mean, just, I mean, you imagine an eight-year-old. What is going on in the mind of an eight-year-old? He just comes to the throne at this time, eight years old, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So he reigned for three decades and an extensive reign, but started out as just a young man. Hopefully he had a good cabinet of advisors uh, around him. And he certainly uh, is such a stellar candidate for just the work of God because it says his mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adaiah of Boscoth. And he did, notice the exact opposite. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in all the ways of his father, David, King David, who was known as the man after God's own heart. And he did not, notice, turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So it speaks of his love for the Lord, of his godliness, the epitaph of his life there, sort of the summary that he did what was right. And the reason why is because he lived out his life in the sight of the Lord. He didn't measure his life off of what was right or wrong of, well, I guess this is right or wrong in comparison to what my dad did or the standards I learned from my grandpa. No, he said, what is right in God's sight? He measured his decisions and how he chose to live out his life based off of, I am seeking God's acceptance. I want God's approval. Is this right in God's sight? Is this wrong in God's sight? And because he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, he walked in the ways of godliness. He didn't turn aside to the right or to the left. That is, he just kept a a straight path seeking the Lord 
Let me just read to you quickly from uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 34. It tells us this, a little insight regarding uh, King Josiah. It tells us he was eight years old when he began to reign, but listen to what the Bible tells us. 2 Chronicles 34 says it was in the eighth year of his reign, so that would be when he's 16 years old. So he comes to the throne at eight. At 16 years old, while he was still young, the Bible says, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And then in the 12th year, it says, that's when he's 20 years old, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images and the carved images and the molded images. Now we'll see in our text back in 2 Kings what he does when he's 26 years old. But interesting, we kind of these like time frames in his life. We're told that he comes to the throne at eight. We're told at the age of 16, the Bible says while he's still young at 16 years old, he began to seek God on his own. That is, as a young man at 16 years old, his heart was awakened spiritually. And as a 16-year-old young man, he determined, you know what? I'm going to seek God. I'm going to seek God myself. I'm going to begin to serve the Lord and follow the Lord. So I love, the, again, the Holy Spirit's reference. While he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, 16 years old. And we need to pray for our 16-year-olds, to pray for our 14-year-olds and our 12-year-olds and those whose conscience is clearly awakened by that state in their life, that while they're still young, right, that they wouldn't waste those years like many of us had, and create unnecessary battle scars and wounds, which, you know, a lot of times, you know, youth struggle with. They think somehow I'm missing something if I don't seek everything all my friends and everybody else in the world is. And so there's almost as if there's this intimidation factor. They're going to miss something if they start seeking God while they're young. The truth of the matter is they are going to miss something. Regrets, pain, problems, right? Difficulties, maybe some diseases, uh, just all, all kinds of things, addictions. They're going to avoid all those things. They're going to miss that stuff and they're going to gain the value of knowing the Lord from a young age. So again, King Josiah, this interesting young man, 16 years old, he starts to seek God. At 20 years old, it says he decides, you know what? I need to do something to be effective for God. So at 16, he starts seeking the Lord for three, four years. And when he turns 20 years old, all of a sudden his heart is lit on fire to start serving the Lord passionately. He starts saying, you know what? I am going to start doing what I can to be effective for God now. And he starts purging the land of filth and immorality and idolatry. Here in 2 Kings 22, it tells us that it was at the time when he's, we're going to see 26 years old, uh, that he begins to really start to restore the temple <coughs> and that which was destroyed. Notice in verse 3, of Second Kings 22, it says it came to pass. It was in the eighth year, or excuse me, eighteenth year of his reign that King Shaphan he was sent, the scribe, the son of Azilla, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord. So he's now 26 years old as he's going to begin this sort of temple restoration process. So at 26, he sends Shaphan, the scribe up to the house of the Lord, saying to him, verse 4, go up to Hilkiah the priest, that he may count the money uh, which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord, and let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house to the carpenters and the builders and the masons, and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. So at 26 years old, he looks upon the temple, which is in ruins, because it's been neglected, it's been abused. They've put all kinds of filthy statues and idolatrous images, because under Manasseh's reign and under the reign of Amnon, you're talking a span of almost you know, 50, 60 years the temple's been neglected, idolatry's been introduced. So for a long period of time, the house of the Lord has been greatly neglected. And now it comes into the heart of King Josiah, who loves the Lord. You know what? I, I want to see a revival. I want to see a renewal of the things of God and see the house of God opened and cleansed and the worship of the Lord restored. So it seems some sort of a 
temple tax or an offering is received among the people and now the money has come together and he now sends Shaphan, it says, up to Hilkiah the high priest saying, here, you take account for this money, count it and begin to disperse it to the different workers, to the masons and to the carpenters and those who are going to buy uh, hewn stone and timber, it says, so that they can repair the house. And notice, compensate, he says, give it to the hand of those who are doing the work. The Bible says the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the idea is to begin to compensate these people who are working and doing the labor in the house of God so that they're compensated for their work of restoration and repair. Look at verse 7. However, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. Now, that's pretty incredible. He says, bring this money up to them for the repair of, of God's house and the work that they're doing. And he says, don't worry about any bookkeeping or keeping track of the accounting of the funds because the people's hearts have integrity. And because they're dealing faithfully, he says, don't worry, each person will give a, a good, fair amount of work for what they're receiving, and they're going to deal faithfully and use integrity with the buying of the materials and receiving compensation for their labor. And because of their faithfulness, he says, you don't even have to keep track of the funds. I mean, that would be like a general contractor's dream right there. Can you imagine that? That'd be like doing a construction project and saying, you know, just you don't have to keep track of anything. No receipts. Just start giving people money. They'll only use as much as they need. Nobody will overcharge us. They're only going to take a fair wage for what they're doing. I mean, uh, just a beautiful thing, however, when people's hearts are in the right place and they're dealing faithfully and you don't got to, you know, kind of micromanage the work of God. How wonderful when everybody that's doing work for God is just doing it faithfully and you don't have to follow up on people. Did they do what we asked? Did they take care of it? I mean, just that was the idea here. People were just doing what they were doing faithfully as they're repairing the temple. Verse 8 says, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe then, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And he gave the book to Shaphan and then he read it. So as they're doing the temple restoration and repair project, all of a sudden, in the house of the Lord, they find, it says, the book of the law. The idea is they find a copy of the scriptures. Now, we're not sure if that's a reference to uh, the entirety of Genesis to Deuteronomy or just a reference to the book of Deuteronomy. The implication there, most importantly, is they find a copy of the scriptures in the house of the Lord. Imagine that. Imagine finding the word of God in the house of God. And, and the idea here is like, like it's a surprise. What? Look at this. We found a Bible in church. And again, just goes to show you the spiritual neglect of the people in their worship that the high priest comes out with this discovery. He says, I found a Bible in the house of the Lord. And, and Shaphan, the scribe, takes it. Let me see that thing. What does it say in there? And he starts to read the word of God for himself. And I look at this and I think, what a beautiful thing, because as this work of God's spirit begins to happen through Josiah in this time and sort of, again, a spiritual renewal and revival starts to take place as he's trying to reform the land for the benefit of God. Notice what's directly connected to that is a rediscovering of the word of God. There's a rediscovering of the word of God and a reinstituting of the word of God in the house of God, which is where it belongs. It's kind of a very sad thing when uh, it takes people rediscovering the word of God in the house of the Lord. Uh, it should be something that has centrality in the house of the Lord. But here there's this rediscovery. But, you know, you look throughout history and every time there's been a real spiritual revival or a renewal or a spiritual awakening throughout history, you trace it back. There is always connected to that like this, a rediscovery of the word of God. Whenever there's this rediscovery of the word of God and its value and its power in the lives of people, and that is reintroduced into the lives of God's people, so often that is one of the critical pieces to a spiritual awakening or to a revival that takes place. And so here, they find the word of God. Hilkiah, I like it. The first thing he does is he says, let me read that. I want to see what that thing says. And he just decides to start reading the word of God, seeing what it says for himself. And verse 9 says, Then Shaphan the scribe, who knows how long he read the word of God for, 
He then went back to the king, bringing word to the king, saying, your servants gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work. So we, we went, king, we gave the money over to the workers and the high priests there who oversee the house of the Lord. And then he passes on the good news. Verse 10, then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And then Shaphan read it before the king. So he now, we found this book in the house of the Lord. King, let me read to you what this says. And I like this here. Now, now here's somebody who's excited about the word of God and his own discovery. And he says, you know, who's the highest ranking politician in the land? Why don't you sit there? And let me read something to you. And he just starts reading the word of God to him. And, and Josiah now, whose heart is already inclined to the Lord, his heart's very sensitive to the hearing of the word of God because look what happens, verse 11. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakim and Shaphan and Agbor, the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the scribe and Asaiah servant of the king saying, go inquire of the Lord for me. Go pray. I need counsel and instruction, he says, for the people and for all of the land of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great is the wrath of the Lord aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. We've been neglecting obedience to the word of God to do according to all that is written concerning us. So as, as Josiah hears the word of God read to him, notice his heart's not dull. He's not falling asleep. He's not disinterested. He's not thinking about what's his schedule for tomorrow or next week. He's actually attentive. And he's hearing potentially passages from Genesis and Exodus, maybe even Leviticus. And Numbers and Deuteronomy, that, that's what's certainly composed there in a reference to the book of the law. That's all that existed at this time. And as he's hearing these passages, hearing the word of God read to him, his heart is tender. And look how responsive it is. It says, when he hears the word of God, verse 11, he tore his clothes. Now, that was an expressive act. The Jews were very expressive people. That was an expressive act of astonishment. Of, of sheer horror, of grief. This is what they would do when they would tear their clothes. It was an indication of, of like their heart being wrenched. And, and what he's saying is that the word of God was it, was, it was just like tearing his heart into. It was like a sword piercing within as the New Testament tells us the word of God is. This reminds me of how when Peter preached the word of God on the day of Pentecost, and remember it says the people were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? God's word just piercing their hearts and their hearts being so tender and responsive. Notice he doesn't just hear God's word and say, well, that's interesting. But he instantly right away, he's, he's gripped with conviction, particularly conviction over sin because he hears the word of God in these passages from no doubt Deuteronomy, maybe of the blessings and the curses, blessings if they obeyed God and the curses that would come upon them in the land if they disobeyed God and his covenant and will. And as he hears this, he is convicted deeply by the sin that's revealed in his own heart and in the land at this time, all these years. And he says, we need to go seek God. And he says, God's anger must be aroused against our land because he says in verse 13, the Lord's wrath must be aroused because we have not been obeying the word of God. We've been disregarding God's word. God, God must be about to judge us. And so beautiful here, you know, would to God that we would have sensitive hearts to the word of God, that our, our ears wouldn't be dull, that our ears would be open and our hearts sensitive, and that when we hear God's word, there would be genuine conviction, that our hearts would be gripped and that we'd want to respond, that we'd want to know, God, what do you want of us in light of what you've spoken to us? So he says, go find out. We need counsel. God's wrath must be looming over us because God's word says we have violated so many of what he's told us to do here in his word. So verse 14, in accordance with that instruction, Hilkiah the priest 
And those other guys described there, Asaph, they went, notice verse 14, to Huldah the prophetess. So they go and seek out particularly a, a female prophet. Now, whether they purposely had a relationship with her, whether someone else wasn't available, they go to her and she's going to bring now an insight and revelation from the Lord. It is interesting that during this time, the prophets, again, just for your chronological kind of reference, Zephaniah is prophesying during this time, as well as Jeremiah. So as you read those books, Zephaniah and Jeremiah, they kind of overlap with the time of King Josiah's reign and these events that are taking place here. But they don't go to Zephaniah or Jeremiah. Again, God doesn't have to use the quarterback. We talked about that on Sunday a few weeks ago. They go to hold of the prophetess. To a woman who truly just was a, uh, a sensitive person to the Holy Spirit, who had a ministry at times of giving prophetic words. So they went to hold of the prophetess, who was the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Haras, who was keeper of the wardrobe. So her husband was the keeper of the wardrobe. She had a prophetic ministry, and she dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they spoke with her and she said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. So God uses her to give revelation in regards to the concern of the king. Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the words of the book, which the king of Judah has read because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath, the Lord says, shall be aroused against this place and it shall not be quenched. So in accordance with the word of God, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 29, God says, I will honor my word and tell the king he's accurate. His understanding from the spirit, from what he's heard from the word of God is true. I will bring judgment upon this place because they've crossed a line morally and spiritually. However, verse 18 she adds more to her revelation to go back to the king. She says, but as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. That is in regard, this is the Lord's word for him personally. Nationally, I'm going to judge the land, God says. But tell him personally, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard. Because your heart was, notice, tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord God when you heard what I spoke against this place and against the inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And you tore your clothes, that is, you were responsive to God and his word, and wept before me. Your heart was broken. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace." And your eyes shall not see all the calamity. That is, he would not be around during the time when the judgment of God fell, when Judah went into captivity in Babylon. So they brought this word back to the king. So notice the encouraging word from the Lord. Josiah, yes, you're right. I am going to judge the land. I'm going to honor my word. I said that if the people turned away from me, that the curses would come upon the land and they have pushed beyond the limits of disobedience. And so nationally, I must judge the land. However, he says, personally, I've seen the repentance and the contrition in your heart. I see that you personally have a tender heart towards the Lord and that your heart has been tender and you've humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard the word of God. Again, I love how verse 19 describes that. That's the kind of heart personally that we want to have towards the word of God. A heart that is tender. The idea is sensitive. Is your heart tender to the word of God? Or perhaps if you, you know, we say that phrase familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes we have to be careful of that as Christians with the word of God. We've read the word of God so many times. We've heard the word of God so many times that sometimes our, our hearts almost kind of get a little kind of dull and, and calloused. And it's almost as if we're reading the word of God in our personal time or we're hearing the word of God. And it's, it's just another reading. It's just another sermon. And our heart's not tender anymore. As compared to maybe other times when we would read the word of God and man, it would pierce our hearts. And we were tender and sensitive and it was like things were coming off the page and we're like, God, you're talking to me. Lord, you're speaking. Lord, I'm reading that in the present tense. Wow, Lord, that phrase, that's exactly what I needed to hear this morning. That's exactly what I needed you to tell me. 
and that our heart would be tender and that we would humble ourselves before the authority of God's word and say, Lord, if that's your word, I embrace it for me. And I want to obey it or respond to it or take it to myself. And he says, because your heart was humble and your heart was tender, he says, and you tore your clothes and wept that as you responded to the word of God, he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to allow peace to be in your life and you're going to experience good in your personal life, though the nation itself would be judged. And again, God help us to have that heart like Josiah in the hearing and response to the word of God. Verse 1 of chapter 23 says, Now the king then sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And now notice what the king does. He calls everybody together and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. You know, last night was a state of union. Can you imagine if Trump just came out and just said, I want to share something. And he just read for 82 minutes. Isn't that how long the state of the union was? <laughs> and you can't really stop him when he's doing a state of the union, right? And he just read the word of God. And he just poured out the scriptures and just laid out the people. I mean, can you? And really, here Josiah calls all the people together, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, all the people. It says, small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which they found. So he just starts reading the word of God. Notice, here's the third time as the Holy Spirit mentions this rediscovery of the word of God. It says that Shaphan read it for himself. Then Shaphan went and read it to the king. And now the king is now reading it in the hearing of all the people. Look, God's word has value and purpose when it is read and it is shared and it is exposed and it's heard by his people. Just the reading of the word of God, even without the exposition of the Holy Spirit's ministry of teaching and, and exhortation. And, and even if that was non-existent, just the reading of the word of God itself, because it's the living inspired word of God. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This book is profitable. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, the entrance of your word gives light. Just the reading of the word of God, the power of the living word of God, the, the influence it has, what wisdom there is, not only to read it personally, but to realize the value, you know, that, that when we have opportunity just to read the word of God, if that's all that was done, people's lives would change. If more people in the church and in the body of Christ generally would just start reading their Bibles, something really powerful would start happening in the church of Jesus Christ. If more churches spent more time reading and just setting forth the word of God before the hearts and the ears and the lives of people, wonderful things would start happening because God's word is powerful. It's alive. The power is in the word of God itself. So now the word of God is being read to the people and verse 3, after he reads the word, it says the king stood on a pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord. That is, he makes now this commitment to God before the people to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with, notice, all his heart and all his soul, that speaks of personal dedication, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. So the king reads the word of God to the people, and then he says, listen, as your leader, I'm making a public commitment, a covenant today to follow the word of God. I'm not just going to read it. I want to live it. I want to practice it. I want to obey it. I'm going to follow the Lord, he says, and the way I'm going to do that is perform the words that are written in this book. And he makes this public commitment, all his heart, all his soul, to perform and obey what the word of God says. And it says all the people took a stand for the covenant. So the people joined in with this commitment. Now, how sincere they were or insincere is, uh, you know, really questionable because ultimately we'll see as things unfold that not everyone seemed to be genuine. 
But nonetheless, the great example of this king as he publicly says he's going to follow the Lord. And verse 4 says, The king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal and Asherah, for all the host of heaven, that is the astrology worship and so forth, the horoscopes, the ideas, and he burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, and he carried their ashes to Bethel. And then he removed, take notice of these terms here, verse 5, then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places. So he fired all the evil workers he says, in the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem and those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and all the host of heaven. And he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord. Again, there was images perverse right in God's house to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem. And he burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it into ashes. Sounds like some passionate effort there, huh? And then threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. Again, take notice what he's doing here. He's now ridding the house of God from everything filthy and immoral. And with passion, he's purging evil and sin and idolatry, which is destructive in the lives of God's people and hinders them from worship. So he's purging these things and with passion, he's removing things and removing people even that are unhealthy influences and, and taking things and grinding them up and burning them and spreading their ashes. You know what he's doing here is he's basically making idolatry irretrievable. So he doesn't just say, well, let's just take that statue and go put it you know, in a, uh, uh, you know, a storage unit. Let's just go put it somewhere because, you know, I mean, I mean we don't want to disrupt, but let's just go. He says, no, 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 we're not keeping it. We're destroying it. We're making it irretrievable. The idea is what he's doing as we read these verses here and in front of us, he is radically removing unhealthy, evil, sinful, idolatrous influences in a way whereby it's irretrievable to ever go back down those patterns again. And that is great wisdom because sometimes, look, if we're serious and we're going to purge and get rid of old, unhealthy things that have been holding us back from living for God the way we should, whether personally or corporately, sometimes you got to get radical and you got to cut off the path and not even live an opportunity to ever go back to those things. And this is what he's doing here. He tore down the ritual booths, verse 7 says of the perverted person. So they had booths where they would go in and do their perverted practices that were, look at this, verse seven, in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. And he bought all, brought all the priests from the cities of Judah that, and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba, that is north of Jerusalem, to Beersheba, the southern part of Judah. He broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua the governor of the city, which were uh, there to the left of the city gate. <clears throat> Verse 9, Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Notice verse 10, that no man might make his son or his daughter passed through the fire to Molech. Again, we've talked before about the worship of Molech where they would heat up this molten statue and then they would sacrifice their children by putting their arm, their children on the red-hot arms of this uh, statue of a god Molech. And again, it was the idea there was as they would do this, it was a sacrifice to Molech, sacrificing their best, and Molech was the god of pleasure. So it was basically the worship of, of pleasure. And so for their own fulfillment, their own pleasure, they would sacrifice their children. And we do sadly much the same, maybe not in that sense, but in other ways today. So he removed that. He defiled and ruined those things so they couldn't continue to sacrifice their children. Then he removed the houses that all the kings of the Judah, excuse me, the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord. And the officer of the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun and the fire, all these different things they worshipped, the, the, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars. 
Verse 12, the altars that were on the roof in the upper chamber of Ahaz, going back multiple dynasties, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh, his grandfather, had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He broke down and he pulverized, that's a strong word, there, and threw their dust out into the brook Kidron. Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the Mount of Corruption. That's a good name for a place of idolatry, the Mount of Corruption, (laughs) which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and Milcom, the abomination of Ammon. Notice these other forms of worship, God just calls them abomination. Whether it's worshiping sexual, you know, pleasure and fulfillment through lust, whether it's worship of the intellect, the worship of, of money and finances, whatever God or idolatry it was, God, they're, just, they're all abominations because they hinder us from our true worship of God. They hold us back and anything that stands between us and God has that categorization. He broke in pieces, verse 14, the sacred pillars, cut down the wooded images and filled their places with the bones of men. By filling with the bones of men, that made them ceremonially unclean so the Jews wouldn't touch them because then it would make them defiled. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel, so now he's traveling up into the northern kingdom where they've already been taken into captivity. The high place at Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, he made both that altar and the high place he broke down and burned the high place and crushed it to powder, burned the wooden image. As Josiah turned, he then saw the tombs that were on the mountain, and he sent and took the bones of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according, look at verse 16, according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. And he said, what gravestone is this that I see? So the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, let him alone, let no one move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. So notice in the midst of all these experiences here, Josiah, it says, begins to do more things. And verse 16 and 17 and 18 here is describing how he defiles a particular altar. Verse 16 says, according to the word of God that a man of God had proclaimed or prophesied about Josiah doing this. Now, what this is referring to here, going a little ways back, stretching back, 1 Kings chapter 13. There in 1 Kings chapter 13, it tells us that a prophet of God comes and makes a pronunciation regarding a man, Josiah, that would be born one day about these very events. It says, Behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried out against the altar, this false altar that was keeping people from serving God, saying, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a child... Josiah by name shall be born to the house of David and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you and men's bones shall be burned on you. 325 years ago, some generic prophet without even a name came at that time, it says, to Jeroboam when this false altar was created that was keeping people from serving God and he came and he pronounced judgment against this altar and how it would be carried out and he says it will be carried out by a child named Josiah who would be from the southern kingdom who would extend his reforms spiritually beyond his own boundaries of Judah and go up into the northern kingdom and is now dealing with and destroying this altar in his zeal for the Lord here And Josiah, unbeknownst to him, maybe he was aware of it, but I get the impression that he wasn't. He's now fulfilling, maybe he was aware, maybe he was, but he's fulfilling a prophecy from 325 years ago, according to the word of the Lord, and dealing finally with something that had been left undone for literally three centuries. But yet God's word for three centuries 
had been spoken and for 300 plus years it looked like it wasn't coming to pass. But on God's timetable, remember the Bible says that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. See, we're frustrated by time. And so we think sometimes, Lord, it's been so long. Have you lost your file or something? Did you lose my file? I mean, could you, could you check in your drawer? Lord, you, I thought your word said, and, and, and we struggle because time causes us frustration. But understand, from God's perspective, we go, Lord, it's been a thousand years. He goes, huh? It's only been a day from my perspective because he dwells outside the time continuum in eternity. And here Josiah comes on the scene and he fulfills the word of the Lord. God demonstrates his faithfulness and Josiah proclaims this is a fulfillment of the word of the Lord as he's destroying that altar and God's prophecy is being fulfilled in this very moment here. And again, what a beautiful demonstration of God's faithfulness. And think of this as well with me if you would. 300 years before this child Josiah who's used mightily of God, was ever born? 300 years. He wasn't even impregnated yet in his mother's womb. 300 years before the existence of this young man's life, God knew about his existence. God knew the sex of the child. God knew the name of the child. And God knew the destiny of how he was going to use Josiah and talked about it 300 years before it ever came to pass. A lot of times we go to Jeremiah. As validation for the sanctity of life, God says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you, I set you apart as a prophet of the nation. How about 300 years? God knew about the value of a life 300 years before it ever came into existence. And God had a plan for that life. God values life. Every life has value. Can you imagine? Look what Josiah's destiny was to bring such incredible spiritual influence we never know what god may do through any life through your life you never know what god has intended maybe there's some word of the lord god's been holding out in the heavens and he's saying you are here for such a time as this and then the word of the lord just begins to flow through your life and wonderful things begin to happen amazing to see how god used this young man josiah who turned his heart towards the lord our times elude us we're going to have to stop there let's just stand and we'll pray and turn our hearts back towards the lord and